Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hi, my name is Nathan Hobson, and I'm a host for New Books in Japanese Studies, a member of the New Books Network. Today, I'll be talking with Dr. Ben Whaley about his Toward a Gamic World, New Rules of Engagement from Japanese Video Games, which is out from the University of Michigan Press in 2023. This book examines the path-breaking engagement strategies of four Japanese video games produced between 2002 and 2015. Each of these persuasive games deploys a distinct strategy of engagement to push players to engage with real-world social issues and traumas. Disaster Report, released in 2002, takes on natural disasters. Catherine, from 2011, addresses Japan's declining birth rate and aging population. Metal Gear Solid V, which came out in 2015, in other words, after the March 2011 Fukushima Triple Disaster, takes on nuclear proliferation. And finally, The World Ends With You, from 2007, faces the issue of social withdrawal. These games differ in genre, platform, mechanics, etc., but as Whaley shows, they share an interest in using the immersive, multimedia, boundary-crossing experience of gaming to create an emotive persuasive experience that prods gamers to engage with these issues in new ways. All right, Dr. Whaley, thank you so much for joining us uh, on the podcast today. So we're going to be talking about your book, Toward a Gamic World. Uh, and one of the key themes in the book is engagement uh, in Japanese video games, which is a really interesting way to think about video games. And it's not one that I had really um, considered very deeply. So I wonder if you could uh, tell us a little bit about how you came to the research uh, that became this uh, book. Sure. Well, thanks very much uh, for for having me. I appreciate it. Um, <clears throat> so I work on Japanese popular cultural studies, um, and I have a background originally in in looking at uh, manga, uh, print comics, and my current research looks at that as well. I've always played video games ever since I was I was young, um, but I admit that I hadn't really thought about them very much, sort of academically, uh, until I, uh, you know, went into academia and started publishing on the topic. And I think for this particular book, really, the idea came about when I played a game called Catherine, which is actually the the second game that's discussed uh, in chapter two. And this is this kind of quirky puzzle game from Japan where you kind of move blocks around and you scurry up this tower. But as I was playing this puzzle game, and I've always enjoyed playing those sorts of, of games like, like Tetris and Dr. Mario, I found that this game actually had a, to my mind, a surprisingly 
deep and kind of pointed discussion within it about issues surrounding intimacy in Japan, uh, sort of family structures, having kids, right, child rearing, something that you wouldn't naturally expect from playing these sorts of games. And then moreover, as you were playing this puzzle game, I thought the game was doing some interesting things to kind of provoke the player to think more deeply about these issues, particularly, um, as I discussed kind of in the chapter, in terms of kind of checking in with the player, polling them, right, to kind of solicit their actual reactions and opinions about uh, different issues related to, to marriage, childbirth, and that as you answered these sorts of questions throughout the game, the game narrative then shifted, right? The story then took a different turn. And so I thought this was an interesting <clears throat> way of not only kind of tackling this issue, but also involving the player in it. And so as I played this game, I started to wonder, you know, is this something we see a lot in Japanese games? Are there more games like this, right? That might take up these sorts of kind of social, cultural issues. Um, and so I started looking for games that that did similar things. And that's kind of how I came about uh, the different games that are case studies in the book, um, all of which kind of crystallize, I think, around issues of, of kind of traumatic events and social anxieties in contemporary Japan. Yeah, well, I'm looking forward to getting a chance to talk about uh, Catherine in just a moment, but I want to jump back to that uh, keyword of yours, engagement, uh, before we jump into the case studies. Um, and so you have, as you said, these four games uh, and four modes of engagement that make up the body of the book. Um, what are for, to your mind, what are some of the potential benefits of game playing just more generally and specifically uh, when it comes to this idea of engagement um, and how that relates to this idea of the gameic, G-A-M-E-I-C, uh, which is in your title? Yeah. Right. Yeah. So I think, you know, we hear a lot these days um, about video games kind of positively and negatively, right? But there's a lot of discussion, I think, in terms of the way that games might ask us to, to model negative behaviors, whether it's violent behaviors or, or things in games. We have discussions of, of games and aggression. We have discussions um, in and outside academia about the ways in which, um, you know, game communities might act, right? Um, and I found that actually there's a whole host of, of research um, whether we're looking at social sciences, medicine, right, the humanities, that are all kind of attesting to the wealth of possibilities and the kind of positive benefits of, of playing games as well, right? And this often, um, you know, might not be talked about as much when we're kind of problematizing, right, aspects of, of the genre or the industry. Um, and this includes stuff, right, like uh, using virtual reality headsets to treat burn victims, right, the cover story on Nature Magazine, which is about using a simple racing game uh, to improve neuroplasticity for, for elderly patients, right, suffering from dementia uh, or other sort of cognitive um, diseases, right? So we have, we have work that's being done in medicine. We have work that's being done uh, about bringing games into the literature classroom, right, from kind of a scholarship and teaching and learning point of view. Um, and then, of course, we have the kind of work that, that I do, which is more in the humanities, looking at the, the content of games and, and how we interact with them. So 
for me, it was important to, to talk about game engagement in a positive way, thinking about the ways that it might help us as players and also help us to get around some of these, you know, kind of important issues. So I think game engagement is really complex. It is dependent on a variety of factors from everything that we control in a game to stuff that we don't, right? That might be like pre-recorded, like a, uh, a movie. Um, and I think games use their tools of simulation to engage us in a variety of different ways. Some games might engage us emotionally or intellectually. Other games are fun to play physically. If you've ever gone to an arcade and, you know, beat on the giant, you know, taiko drum or, or race in a, in a um, you know, motorcycle or, or kind of a car cabinet, right? And some games don't engage us at all um, on kind of higher intellectual or emotional levels. So in this book, when I talk about engagement, I'm largely referring to games and their capacity uh, to evoke feelings, sort of actual feelings of guilt or of complicity or of connection or of, of overcoming um, from a fictional experience of trauma. And of course, art and, and media can, I think, inspire and cultivate these feelings in a variety of ways, but it can be difficult, I think, to, to feel some of these things uh, in other media. So one of the things that I think that game immersion, that game simulations can do really well um, is to get us to feel these sorts of, of connections with admittedly a completely kind of fictional experience of trauma. And so where I take this then in the book is I say, okay, here are these sorts of uh, feelings of engagement that we might have. And then what I think a lot of the Japanese games are doing in a, in a kind of really uh, interesting manner is to try to engage players beyond the confines of the game. That is to say, think about the ways in which the player's own actions, their reflections, the reality that we're all living in might extend beyond the game, right? And might make some sort of an impact perhaps when, when the game turns off. And so this is kind of the, the idea here with this, this term gamic and, and, and gamic world of the book's title, which I'm borrowing um, gamic from, from Japanese gameteki from uh, Azuma Hiroki, who's a Japanese uh, media theorist. But the idea that game strategies, game techniques, sort of gamification uh, is all around us and it exists as a part of our everyday life and we might not even be used to it or kind of cognizant of it, right? But that these Japanese games, I think, are intentionally playing with this, playing with the ways that we can bring games and game experiences into our everyday life. And I think when we combine this with kind of this exploration of trauma and social events, we get some uh, kind of interesting results. And that's the, the games that I talk about. Yeah, I think this is a, a, a neat way to think about the sort of different functions and, and genres of games, which I hadn't really considered. So there's the sort of purely ludic, just playful on the one hand, then you have, you know, sort of more purely intellectual, you think about shogi or chess or something like that, but that the uh, the power of kind of immersive, uh, interactive narrative 
um, allows these games to be what you call persuasive games, right? They have this emotional uh, effect on the player. Uh, and you specifically you define persuasive games in the book as, quote, tools that potentially shape a player's affectivity and humanity. And so I wanted to ask some questions that jump off of this a little bit. Um, a couple of questions about the thought process behind putting the book together in the way that you have to sort of accentuate that aspect of things. Uh, so the first of those questions is, is there something particular about the design or content of Japanese games? You, you've suggested that that you, you kind of went in with that hypothesis and I'd love if you could explain kind of where you come out on the other end about if there's something specific about the Japanese games in general uh, or about this persuasive genre that makes them particularly worth looking at um, in an academic context. Right. No, I think it's a really, really great question that, that gets to the heart of, you know, how we can talk ab about games. And I think there's a lot of different ways we can approach games from a, you know, computer science standpoint or from a more humanistic standpoint. So I think that, you know, to begin, I mean, there's, there are a host of games that, that are largely unconcerned with making political, ethical, cultural statements, right? I, I you know, and I think that as academics, we can certainly read these sorts of things, you know, in, into games. Um, but it's unsurprising in a sense, because I mean, video games in Japan largely began as, as you know, toys for the family to, to enjoy. Um, and there was a resistance, I think, you know, within early video games, the comment sort of, you know, socially, politically, uh, in a way that, that we don't see as much with, with cinema and film and, and theater. Um, and so now when we're thinking about games, there is absolutely a body of scholarship that, that talks about kind of persuasive games might be one term. Empathy games is another term that's used uh, within the industry, coined by a, a Brazilian developer, a Caballero, that suggests that there are a lot of games that have something important to say about the human condition, but moreover that playing these games might not just be about gaining experience points, about defeating enemies, right? Even though we always do this in, in the games we play, that in fact, the goal might be to, to feel something, right? To, to put it simply. And so where I come at this then is that I'm looking at commercially available games and, and games that are sort of mass market games. So they're games that are designed for, for entertainment. Um, and I think the Japanese games are not the only ones that use these sorts of strategies, but they do use them in some, I, I would say, sort of different and surprising ways, right? And so one of the things that I think is that what makes Japanese games kind of productively engage with trauma and recovery is that they're not as interested, it seems to me, as sort of faithfully rendering this on screen in terms of photorealistic graphics, in terms of a really minutely detailed simulation that we might play through. In fact, as you read these case studies in the book, you see that these games are weird and they're funny and they're self-referential, right? There's meta-narrative. All of these things, I think, suggest that Japanese designers are aware and they're grappling with these issues, but they're purposefully using all of these tools to get at it in, in a different way, in a more kind of fantastical and creative way. And I think that this can be productive um, 
for you know examining some of these sorts of of heavier issues um, in games. So the the next uh, sort of question that I wanted to ask is about the the sort of timing uh, of these games because they all came out between. 2002 and 2015. Um, and I wonder if there's something special about that period, whether it's you know technological or social or whatever, um, or something about just in the history of gaming that makes that a particularly uh, useful or interesting period uh, in thinking about these games. Yeah, it's an interesting um, you know thought and and yeah, it would you know maybe have been good to yeah talk about more of that in the book, I, I think, but. So certainly if we think about kind of this early 2000s sort of period, right? I mean, this is the time if we're thinking about the industry where, you know, the Japanese video games, which have largely dominated with with companies like Nintendo and, and Sega and Sony. Now we have, you know, a challenger from, you know, US from Microsoft's Xbox, which is released. So these kind of console wars, which of course continue to this day, I think, on the one hand, create a lot of interesting creativity in games, right? Because we now have this kind of competitive factor. And there are a lot of really interesting games that are coming out of Japan during this time, particularly on kind of the Sony PlayStation 2, and then later the PlayStation 3. And more broadly, I think if we're kind of thinking about Japan in this particular time, and certain cultural critics make this argument that if we look sort of post- 9-11, post the kind of terrorist attacks. This is an argument that Uno Tsunehiro makes um, and that I talk about in the book, that we can observe kind of a subtle shift in the types of pop cultural narratives that we see coming out in Japan. They are narratives that tend to become increasingly concerned with individual narratives over larger kind of grand, you know, epistemological narratives. There's more of a sense of individuality and survival. Um, and there are different texts which kind of, I think, epitomize this, this change. <clears throat> but then if we move forward to something like uh, the 311 triple disaster, the, which represents the earthquake, the tsunami, and then the meltdown of the Fukushima Daiichi plant, right? That there's, I think, a sense in certain pop cultural narratives, and, and Uno makes this point, that we shouldn't be as concerned with sort of the other world, right, of fantasy. And that and that what we should be looking at in our pop culture works is, and this is to quote him, kind of the here and now, right? So I think that from this point in, in kind of Japanese pop cultural texts, we see games that are absolutely, right, grappling with kind of the here and now. A game like Disaster Report, which is the first game in the book, which is an earthquake simulator, right? It's very much about walking through a, a city that's been destroyed and, and surviving that experience. Um, but then I think, again, back to that point that, that you had just mentioned, while the Japanese games are doing this, I think there's also um, an awareness that at the end of the day, these are games, right? They're meant to be played, they're meant to be fun, they're meant to be enjoyed. So we see as well that we always keep kind of one foot in the sort of, you know, social narrative, the cultural criticism, but we keep the other foot firmly in kind of the interactivity and the fun of, of playing games. And I think that's one thing that makes these uh, experiences 
um, you know, in, is enjoyable is the way that they kind of balance these two aspects. Yeah. So I, the, the last question I have here before we get to the to the case studies uh, relates to a question that that I had uh, while reading the book that was sort of it was a little bit more introspection um, than some of the other questions are. So it's, it both engages with your book and also with some things that I was thinking about myself. And that's this idea that um, all games, uh, sports, et cetera, have a sort of educational function uh, in some way or another. They're, they're in, so, in some measure, they're teaching us about some sort of value system or rule system. Um, and, and so I, I was, I found myself, you know, wondering a great deal about um, whether, how much there is something really unique about the, the medium of, of video gaming. Um, and in particular, uh, you know, whether, whether it's different from uh, games in a more sort of general sense, right. Uh, in the, potential to influence the way we understand and interact with the world. And I, I think we've, we've touched on this a little bit in the sense of their sort of interactive narrative, um, uh, emotive uh, qualities, but I think you're gesturing to something uh, to this uh, as well. When you talk about the gaming as uh, a state in which there's quote, no longer a clear distinction between our lived reality and the mediated reality of everyday life. Um, and you also speculate that, well, the structures of play might become even more commonplace across non-game endeavors in the near future. And I think, you know, as we're seeing technology, uh, it, it preceded such an incredible clip. Uh, even I think probably since you started the book, things have changed well, uh, a great deal. Absolutely. I'm sort of curious where, where you landed on that in the book, uh, you know, in your own mind and where you are now about that. Right. So I think it's, yeah, it's a really um, wonderful question. And And so, you know, by the time I, you know, ended up at, at that kind of conclusion, it, it seemed to me that we were seeing the kind of beginnings of the ways in which many kind of gamic structures were permeating um, our everyday life. You know, I mean, to date, to date myself, uh, you know, a little bit, I mean, when I was in university, that's when, you know, Facebook launched, right? And we started it, I mean, you know, and, and colleagues and, and friends that, that work for other kind of social media companies. And so, you know, since that time, I think we've, we've seen the way those platforms have taken off, but that there's, I think a sense of the ways in which games and, and, and play are now becoming kind of indispensable acts in our, in our everyday life. And I talk about this a little bit in the conclusion, you know, everything like the, the ways in which we have entire currencies now right which are not monetary but they're they're tweets and or x's i don't know what we call it on twitter now you know but uh or or likes or or uh, that sort of thing right so we have all sorts of ways to interact with people and to interact on platforms that while they may not be a video game so to speak they are sort of gamic they are game like and we go into restaurants now and, you know, there may not even be a menu and we have to access it on our phone. And all of these sorts of things, I think, create, right, digital layers and interfaces uh, with the way we kind of mediate as we, we go through our everyday life. These games are a bit older now, right, a a as we mentioned. And so I think some of these games we can appreciate as 
early or kind of proto examples of these sorts of engagement strategies that we now see today much more commonly, right? So for example, the the last game I talk about in the book, The World Ends With You, has this feature where you can kind of walk around with your game system and and surreptitiously connect with other people right over Wi-Fi. And that was super exciting and interesting when that game launched right at a time you know, but today I mean things like, you know, Pokemon Go and AR, uh, you know, enabled games are everywhere. And we see people playing them on the bus or on the train. So I think that we see uh, that these games are a little bit, you know, prescient in a sense, right? And that they are anticipating, I think, some of these changes and they're anticipating some of the ways in which we might uh, use technology, right, in our everyday life. And to the other question of, of sort of, you know, can games do this? Can video games do this? Can all play do this? I think, you know, all play is, as, as you say, is, is imaginative. There is kind of didactic potential, uh, absolutely, with, um, with play. And I think that, you know, I mean, Japanese video games owe some of their trajectory to things like you know, Dungeons and Dragons and tabletop, you know, kind of imaginative uh, games, tabletop role-playing games. One of the things I think that games can do, interestingly, video games particularly, um, is that we can kind of mix media, right, within them, right? So we're not dealing purely with kind of an imaginative act. Um, in a game like Disaster Report, for example, we can actually include real survival information, right, that we could access within the game as text files. If we play something like Metal Gear Solid, which looks at uh, nuclear issues, we can actually embed within that game, you know, archival video, right, of of the, you know, Enola Gay. Uh, and so I think there are ways that video games, owing to their kind of, you know, mixed media construction, can include these different aspects, right, to give us kind of a multifaceted experience of, of this kind of imaginative play that, as you say, I think we can we can do in a variety of different ways, whether it's through sports or through board games. Um, but I think game video games give us, I think, some additional layers that can make these social narratives a bit more potent. Yeah, and so now we're at the point where we jump into, finally, the uh, actual case studies. So you have four, as we've said, uh, each of which explores a different uh, style of engagement and persuasion. Um, in order, you deal with styles that you call limited, distanced, external, and connective. And each of these games also addresses a particular set of social challenges, traumas, etc., as you've already started to uh, explain a little bit. Uh, and they're sort of, I guess, nudging is maybe the word, uh, players toward empathy, toward identification with others, self-reflection, connection, IRL, uh, you know, Pokemon Go being a sort of weird example of that that's not mentioned in the book, but it already came up in conversation. Um, I, I lived near a, uh, a mecca for Pokemon Go in, in uh, Japan for a while. Um, but taking these, taking these uh, uh, four case studies in your book sort of one at a time, um, can you explain the, the issues uh, and the game strategies, the engagement strategies that each uses? Sure. So, um, and I'll, you know, do it briefly or try to keep myself brief so that if anyone does want to read the book, there'll be something left to 
to encounter. The first chapter deals with uh, disaster trauma and disaster survival, and it does so um, by looking at a game called Disaster Report, or in Japanese, Zettai uh, Zetsumetoshi, which is a long-running series uh, of games where you are tasked with surviving uh, an earthquake or tsunami-stricken city in Japan, a kind of fictionalized city. And so you play as a disaster victim, and your job is to move through this cityscape to kind of scavenge for items, to meet other non-playable characters, non-player characters controlled by uh, the computer, to befriend them, to rescue them, and ultimately to escape this disaster situation. So uh, this game has kind of an interesting history that involves kind of being canceled and being brought back into development following the, the 311 triple disaster. Uh, but in this game, I talk about a, a few things. The uh, limited engagement here is an attempt for the game to purposefully limit our experience, to take away these sorts of uh, trappings that we're usually accustomed to with very strong and powerful characters, and to strip all of this away so that we can experience a, a sort of survival uh, simulation at, at this kind of pure level. And one of the way, main ways I discussed that the game right does this is through um, an act of kind of finding fresh water within the game and hydration meters and how that kind of pays homage to, uh, you know, the, the need for fresh water and other sorts of survival tools uh, in the game. And then at the end of the game, I, I discussed the ways in which the game puts together this kind of virtual photo album that acts as a sort of tour of the disaster site you've escaped from, but also as kind of a look back on the game experience, right? And so by doing this, it's kind of encouraging, I think, um, a sort of reflective mode from the player to the disaster experience where the player is both there as the character and also not there. So this is an interesting example, I think, of a game that is really trying to balance disaster trauma, didactic potential, right? What, what do you actually do during an earthquake uh, with the kind of exciting, you know, action adventure uh, survival mechanisms? The second game is Catherine, and I spoke a little bit about that briefly. It's this really fun and kind of bizarre puzzle game. Uh, about a main character named Vincent, who's in this long-running relationship, but he doesn't want to get married to his his girlfriend and doesn't want to have kids and you know, doesn't want to do all of the adulting, so to speak. Um, and so there's a larger sort of social narrative in that game about him being trapped in this nightmare world, which is in fact, a, as we learn, a, a way to punish men who don't want to you know, settle down with their with their partners and and uh, procreate. So I read this against sort of the ongoing social concerns in Japan regarding shoshikoreka, uh, the the declining birth rate and aging population. And so we have kind of interesting parts of this game. We have the puzzle aspects. There's also a sort of loose dating simulation as part of it as well. And then, as I mentioned, every time you kind of complete one of these puzzle levels you enter into a confessional booth and you as Vincent slash the player are asked these series of 
questions about marriage and childbirth, about thoughts on relationships. Um, you're also asked bizarre and kind of goofy questions as well. Um, but as you answer these sorts of questions, the narrative shifts, the multiform narrative takes a different turn. Um, and so I talk about this in, in terms of distanced engagement. Distanced meaning playing with this interval between us as the player, where we know we're engaging in fantasy play, and the game, which we're we're meant to sort of engage with, right, as a as a as an immersive text. And they're, I think, purposefully kind of creating this disjuncture and having us as the player reflect on what we think about the game's themes, right? And this is in turn uh, in turn changing the narrative and how the game game works. The third uh, is Metal Gear Solid, uh, The Phantom Pain, that's Metal Gear Solid 5, one of many of the Metal Gear Solid games. These are stealth action games. They are exciting kind of spy games. If you've never played them, there's a gigantic convoluted story that I won't get into. Nonetheless, in this chapter, I'm talking about violence. I'm talking about sort of nuclear memory, post-traumatic stress, uh, and the ways in which the game is trying to uh, collapse, I would say, the distance between the character on screen and the player. Um, and so I talk about this as a form of um, external engagement. That is to say, the game trying to uh, affect the player and their lived social reality in, in sort of a paratextual way, right? And this game series has had fun ways of, of doing this. If you've ever played any of the Metal Gear Solid games, there are some really pertinent examples. One I talk about in the book where you have to go back to the box your video game came in and you have to locate information on the box and then plug that into the game to continue on. There's other examples where the characters seem to know things right about you and your in your actual um, you know, life. They they read, you know, your memory card, Psychomantis, this psychic character, and he tells you the games you've played and that sort of thing. Of course, it's a clever trick, right, with the the um, memory card that you've put into the system. But nonetheless, these sorts of um, these sorts of kind of fun moments in the game, I think, are all trying to you know give this illusion that what's happening in the game is actually happening to us, right, outside of it. And so this game. I think more than the others takes that even further uh, in its kind of discussion of, of anti-war sentiment and, and virtual violence. And so the game um, tasks us with sort of recruiting and caring for non-playable characters, computer characters. And again, if we think of games like Pokemon Go or even the old Tamagotchi, for example, right? There are lots of games that encourage this kind of intimacy, for lack of a better word, with these sorts of virtual characters. Um, and then the game, I think, makes, you know, a, a profound comment on kind of the stakes of virtual violence by having us as the player um, enact violence towards these, these virtual characters. And in that way, you know, become complicit in, in wartime sort of atrocities, right? And so that's one way I think the game is doing it. And this is occurring at the same time that the game character is, is through the story and other devices being merged with you as the player. 
And the games also have a really strong kind of anti-nuclear um, bent, and they, they always have. And so another interesting aspect of the game that I talk about kind of in regard to this uh, theme of violence and war is the kind of reparative work and, and the game as having a mode where you can uh, try to decommission nuclear warheads, stop nuclear proliferation globally, that is to say across sort of online servers. Um, and so the game also uh, tries to encourage players uh, to do just that. But as you see in the chapter, there's some hurdles with, with that sort of kind of pacifist gameplay. And then last but not least um, is The World Ends With You. This is a Japanese RPG, um, which is the only game discussed that's for uh, a portable system for the Nintendo DS. Um, and this is a game about uh, a young guy, a, a Japanese youth uh, named Neku, who dies and wakes up in this limbo afterlife that's modeled off of uh, Shibuya, the popular youth, um, you know, shopping and, and fashion district in Tokyo. Um, and the game I discuss in, in regards to, to sort of youth social issues, particularly uh, social withdrawal or hikikomori. And the game as an attempt to talk about these issues with its characters, all of, all of whom in the game are young people uh, who have, you know, various issues going on, um, but also through the structure um, of the game itself as sort of a potential um, intervention. And so this game uses uh, the portability of the system and the sort of Wi-Fi connectivity of the system uh, to engage in what I call connective uh, engagement. And so connective engagement is really taking a one person game, a single game, a single player game, but making it seem as though we are sort of connecting with, with other players uh, in, in different ways. Uh, so different, of course, than if we're actually playing with people on a couch or an arcade or, or what it is. So in this sense, you could, when the game came out at least, walk around your neighborhood and if you encountered somebody who also had the video game and the DS system, your systems would connect. You could trade items and, and get, you know, bonus points for doing that. And this is, again, a type of kind of proto-augmented reality play that we're now pretty accustomed to with, with cell phone games, mobile games. But at the time, I think it was quite uh, uniquely done in this and, and a few other games that came after it. So... I talk about this as a way of potentially encouraging people to kind of explore their own, you know, spaces in their own neighborhood and to connect, right, without connecting. And it's interesting to kind of think about that in the aftermath of, you know, the pandemic that we've all been through and social distancing, but finding ways to connect with each other through Zoom. Um, so this game has an interesting way of doing that by walking around and, and connecting via system, via your system. And also, it's a game that, as I discuss, um, rewards you for not playing it. So when you turn off the game, um, it generates, based on how many hours, how many minutes, how many seconds you're not playing the software, uh, bonus points for when you, when you log on again, right, when you boot it up again. And so this is another kind of fun sort of self-referential way I think of, of getting at this larger 
concern about isolation and withdrawal by literally sort of prompting the player to turn off the game, right? And and to to go outside. Um, and so I think with all of these these games, what we see um, are fun, fantastical, kind of humorous ways to deal with these different social issues, but also an attempt to leverage the simulations, to leverage the technologies of, of video games, right? The kind of imperfect technologies that we have to try to reach out to players, um, to get them to experience and to feel things about these social anxieties, about these traumatic issues in their everyday life. And so this is one of the sort of, uh, I would say, impactful conclusions that that kind of came to me, right, as I, as I was writing this and looking at these games, that we really do, if we stop and look and we play, we see a lot of these kind of earnest, opportunities to engage players in these kind of new and exciting ways around these social issues. And I think a lot of that is owing uh, to the technology and the creativity of, of video games. Yeah, thank you very much for uh, going through all of those. I know that's a, <laughs> that, that's a lot to throw at you all at once, but uh, I appreciate it. Um, and I think one of the things that you sort of did here is set me up for the, the final question, which is uh, what you're working on now, because um, clearly, you know, obviously books out and that's wonderful, but so many of the challenges uh, that these games address, some are still there, as you suggested with things like Corona and, uh, you know, the pandemic, there's new challenges. Also, as we've talked about, the technology is changing, what we can do with games is changing. So I imagine this would be a very fruitful field to continue in if that's what you're doing. But what is it that you're up to now, now that you, you have the book out and uh, you're, you're free to pursue something New yeah, and different if you no, want. And, no, and you're you're absolutely right. You know, it's it's really interesting to think about games and how fast and how radically games have changed, right? I mean, from early games, whether we're thinking about, you know, Atari or the original, you know, uh, family computer Nintendo entertainment system, right to today where we can carry games with us everywhere, where we have entirely different ways to interact with games through virtual reality headsets or through augmented reality games have come a really long way and they continue i think to to change and to evolve really really rapidly um and so that makes it exciting i think to talk about games and to follow games because but also one of the challenges too i think you know to to write about them academically because uh there just is also a sense of okay you know what what should we talk about today you know because there's so much out there um so for me, I continue to play games. I continue to to write about games, um, and I have some some work that I'm that I'm doing uh, regarding yeah, particularly on that kind of last point of connective engagement. Um, and I'm looking at that in a in a set of other games, um, also ones by uh, Kojima Hideo, like his his game Death Stranding uh, that came out recently. Um, and the other major project that I'm working on now is also very much, I think, kind of interested in, in trauma, uh, in recovery. Uh, but it takes me back to my earlier work on manga, uh, on print comics from Japan. And I'm now looking at uh, manga that really came out between the 1960s and the 1980s that are uh, dealing with uh, the Nazi Holocaust and that are set uh, in Auschwitz. 
So I'm looking at, and some of the current work that I'm doing in terms of, of articles and, and book is looking at this kind of subset of manga, which returns me to kind of these issues of, of war and, and violence and, and trauma. And so there's an interesting subset of manga that have come out really during this kind of 20 year period from the 1960s to the 80s, uh, drawn from uh, shoujo manga artists, from, from girls manga artists that are grappling uh, with the war and that are discussing, you know, the war and memory atrocity um, through the lens of, of the Holocaust. And so that's what um, I'm looking at, you know, today. Um, and I think I've always been kind of interested in these sorts of questions regarding trauma and anxiety and how media, right, can bring us to these questions, to bring us to these discussions, but also what can these media do, right? What can playing a game like Disaster Report do for us or what can reading you know a manga uh that's done by a japanese artist right who grew up you know after the war do for us to to get us into this space um productively or perhaps problematically um that we might not get if we're reading uh, a book or or watching a more conventional film so i think i continue to be really interested by these sorts of, of questions as they span um, Japanese popular media. Well, that sounds fascinating. Uh, and hopefully we'll be able to uh, get you back here uh, in a couple of years with a, a book about that. Uh, but for now, thank you so much uh, for your time today uh, and take care. Thanks very much. 